This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Nicola McLeod, and today on Good Question PEI, we're diving into an area where many folks have questions. Provincial politics. And the lack of clarity around just what goes on in the legislature. Admittedly, it can be confusing. It's a combination of written rules and practical conventions. You've been sending me your questions, like... Whatever happened to that promise of more collaboration in the House? And how will they make a call about who gets to be the official opposition? These are good questions. And the person who could answer a lot of them, our political affairs reporter and the best accordion player in the CBC PEI newsroom, Carrie, <laughs> Carrie Campbell. That's quite a title. Thanks for having me. So start off, what do we mean when we say the spring sitting? Last time I checked, it's February, but we sit next week. Yeah, uh, this has become kind of a misnomer. We do tend to really hold on to our traditions in PEI, and especially in the legislature. The calendar of the legislature was largely based around train schedules. I, I don't think we've had passenger trains since I think it's maybe the 60s. So they made this change so the spring sitting starts earlier. There's two sittings a year, spring and fall sitting, quote unquote spring. Imagine air quotes every time I say spring. Um, it made sense to advance the quote unquote spring sitting because one of the biggest jobs they, they do in the spring sitting is they pass the quote unquote spring budget. That is the province's operating budget for the year, and it's for the fiscal year that kicks in April 1st. And it's never passed for the start of the fiscal year, which is not a huge problem initially because what happens is we kind of go based on a a status quo budget based on what the legislature authorized the year before for spending. But in, say, election years where, you know, sometimes they still haven't passed the spring budget, quote unquote, in the summer, you start to hear people like school principals say, well, I can't hire teachers because you haven't passed the budget yet. So yeah, just generally, the sooner they can get that done, the better. So yes, now the spring sitting starts when it's still winter and we usually have snow on the ground. So we are going to be answering the questions that listeners sent in on this topic. So our first listener question comes from Kevin Rogers. So if the Greens win the D-19 by-election and have three seats, how do they determine who the official opposition is? We now know that Green candidate Matthew McFarland has won that by-election. So the Green Party bumps up to three seats and the Liberals, our current official opposition, also have three seats. So now who gets to be the opposition, Carrie? Yeah, so this is what the speaker now will have to determine. There's nothing in our legislation that says how to approach this situation. There's nothing in the rules of the legislature. There is no precedent on PEI. Whereas, you know, remember we had a tie vote in a district a few years ago. That was settled by a coin toss. That's actually in the legislation. There's nothing for the speaker to draw from locally in PEI here. So what the speaker would normally do in a situation like this. I mean, it's up to her to decide, but she will look to precedent likely in other jurisdictions. And so New Brunswick is kind of the big one. And in New Brunswick, they faced the same sort of conundrum. And they said, well, incumbency is what will determine this. That is, you know, who already had it, they're the ones they'll keep it. So that's a distinct possibility here. There was another case in Alberta. Their speaker considered popular vote 
in making a determination, and that's what the Greens would like to see uh, because then that would make them the official opposition. There's all other aspects of this. I mean, being the official opposition does have perks. You get different sort of committee positions. Your leader gets uh, paid like a cabinet minister. They get a, a vehicle like a cabinet minister. But there's a lot of other things which are not really defined in terms of being the official opposition, for example, how much time you get in question period uh, and things like that, that can be shifted kind of on a case-by-case basis and often is changed and the parties kind of get together and discuss these things uh, before every sitting. We reached out to Lyle Skinner. He's a constitutional lawyer uh, and he really lives for this kind of thing. He's also got PEI roots, so he kind of checks all our boxes here. Here's a little bit of what he told us about this. The Speaker would always prefer if something could be agreed upon by the House leaders and presented as a plan forward. Um, but generally, you know, as, as parties go up or go down in standing, there generally is across Canada readjustment in the allocation of questions to each group and try to be equitable or proportionate. It could be a situation where there could be the same amount of questions for both the Greens and the Liberals, just that whoever is recognized as the official opposition would, would go first. So that's kind of an example of how the speaker and the parties might approach the the question of who gets, you know, what time during question period. So do we know if the Greens are putting themselves forward? They they want to be the official opposition? They have. So both parties, uh, last we checked, had made submissions to the speaker. We'll probably find out about that on the day of the sitting. Hi, I'm Barbara Cairns and I live in Stratford, Prince Edward Island. I wanted to know what happened to cooperation. So when King was first elected, it was so positive and there was cooperation. And now everybody's in their own little corners saying, me, me, I, I, my party. Let's cooperate and make things better. So that question from Barbara, I mean, of course, when Dennis King first ran, it was on this platform of doing politics differently. But we've we've kind of seen that change. Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of also what the Greens were saying at the time, that they would do politics differently. And, and you know, they said that they had been doing that up till then. Collaboration, that was the big word, right? We don't hear that as much anymore. Honestly, I think that was a really unique time in PEI political history from 2019 forward to... I don't know where you put the end date on that there. And I think honestly, in terms of Canadian political history, that probably stands out. It was our first functioning minority government. And I think it was a very functional minority government, and which is interesting because we had just been through these debates around proportional representation, the idea put out there, including by our former Liberal Premier Wade McLaughlin, that if you switch to PR, you would have minority governments in perpetuity and that would be a bad thing. They wouldn't be able to get work done. I think we did see them get work done and it was a different kind of work than we've seen, than I've ever seen in the legislature before because of, I think, that collaboration, the PCs partly by necessity, but also just by the choice of their leader, Dennis King, decided to give a lot of runway to the opposition parties. And so we ended up with things like PEI became the first province in Canada to restrict the use of non-disclosure agreements in, you know, harassment settlements. We had the all-party special committee on poverty, which came forward with its recommendations uh, around a basic income. One of the things that allowed that to work as well as it did for that time was kind of the relative parity of the parties in the House. So it was a minority government, so they had to work together. But you also had, you know, in the initial uh, allotment of seats, 12 PCs, 8 Greens, 6 Liberals. They kind of were able to engage on equal footing 
in that situation. And then the PCs won the deferred election, then they won a by-election, then another by-election. The minority status was gone. It became a majority. And I don't know who to point to why it all changed. I think um, the liberals, first of all, they were always a little bit I won't say unwilling, but they kind of uh, – they were very clear about this too. They said, we don't think it's our role to always be cozy with government. You know, We're going to pick and choose when we're going to collaborate with whom. And you had um, the Greens, which I think they came out of this, especially in the last election, for everything we thought we got done there. Um, the PCs seem to have taken all the political credit for that. So they changed the way that they want to approach it. Yeah. So it was an interesting time and now it's over. Do you remember the first time you were in the House watching the parties interact with each other and thinking like, oh, the tone is shifting, like things are things are going to change now? I don't know that there was a specific day. Um, I do remember. I mean, this is how different things are now. The very first set of questions in 2019 after that election was where Peter Bevan Baker and Dennis King came to this agreement that there would be no heckling in the legislature. Um, that has long since been abandoned by all parties. So that's kind of where we started and here's where we ended up. Our next question comes to us from Toby Pearden on Facebook. Why does PEI have so many MLAs and government in general? And we actually have a special good question correspondent who will be taking this one. Hi, I'm Ed McDonald. I teach history at the Provincial University. We first elected a legislature in 1773 when the population of the province was about 1,200 to 2,000 people and we had one riding but you know, with 18 members. As the province grew, they decided to use actually our counties, three counties, each of which would have the same perhaps complement of seats. We gradually went up from 18 to 24 and 24 to 30. Now there was also an appointed house the upper house went by the way of the dodo, but actually they integrated into the lower house. And things went along quite nicely and urbanization slowly started to accelerate. So some parts of the island complained that they should have more seats. And ultimately in the 1960s, we increased our house to 32 seats so that the capital city could have two more members. In the 1990s, the island was in the middle of a fiscal crisis. I remember it quite well because I was working for the province and they cut my wages. And one of the reforms that was put on the table was to reduce the size of the legislature. So in a nutshell, we've gone from 18 members to 42 members to 30 to 32 and now 27. And our population is going up, but I don't think there are any plans to, to increase the size of the house. All right, so I'm here with my colleague Carrie Campbell, our provincial affairs reporter here at CBC. So far, we've established the spring sitting doesn't really happen in the spring. We don't know yet who the official opposition will be. We have kind of left that phase of collaborative politics that we were once seeing. And the reason we have as many MLAs as we do goes back about 300 years. Our next question comes from Chantal Batchelor. How can a political party sit in legislature without a leader? Who would they be accountable to if there's not a leader in the legislature when they're developing what they, you know, their opposition questions? 
Thanks for that, Chantal. That's a great question. So there's two different sort of constructs here to understand that have a certain amount of independence from one another. So the political party is a political construct that exists outside the legislature, and the parties have interim leaders, and it is seen as kind of a disadvantage when your leader is there just on an interim basis because they're seen to not have the same sort of power that a permanent leader would have to set policy to say, you know, these are going to be the priorities of this party and uh, things like that. Uh, so again, that's something that exists outside the legislature. And then you have the caucus of MLAs from that party that sit within the legislature and they form the governing party or they form the official opposition or the third party. And that's a separate thing. And so within the legislature, you have an MLA whose title is leader of the official opposition, but you don't have anyone whose actual title within the legislature is party leader. And so one good example to help us understand this is when the PCs came out of the 2015 election and their leader, Rob Lance, at the time did not win his seat. And he stayed for a while being the leader of the party, but he wasn't in the legislature. So Jamie Foxx became the leader of the official opposition, while Rob Lance, outside the legislature, was still PC leader. And so uh, in terms of you know developing questions for question period, et cetera, Rob Lance could be there in the caucus room, you know, upstairs at the Coles building, and he could tell his party members, this is what I want you to ask during question period, but he couldn't ask those questions. And he would be there and he would be sitting on the guest benches observing but he couldn't be part of the proceedings. Um, and it was kind of an untenable position to have to try to exercise that authority in, within the party from outside the legislature, but not have any standing to do that within the legislature. And so he tried that for a few months and then resigned. So if there was any issues that was to come up in the House, whether it's a decorum or a behavior issue, who are the MLAs accountable to? Is, is it the leader within the House that they respond to or is it their party leader? Well, um, this is where it can get kind of blurry. So, I mean, there's a party whip whose job it is to make sure they're there for votes, et cetera, and that they vote the way the party wants them to. The speaker ultimately is the person who is the arbiter of kind of decorum and things in the House. But again, so the party leader, even if they're not in the House, they are the kind of the political person who has bearing. The party leader can't affect the person's position in the legislature, but, you know, you would expect that members of that party would defer to the leader on a lot of these things. And Chantel also had a follow-up. How does a leader of the party also represent their constituents in the same way if they're a leader and an MLA? There are various functions and duties that every member of the legislature has to fulfill and some that only some have. So cabinet ministers are also part of government. So, you know, most of them have offices at the Shaw building or some other government building. They have duties in that regard. But then every MLA also is responsible for, you know, taking care of their constituents. And there's a really wide range in terms of how they approach that. So, you know, I think the further back an MLA goes, uh, they kind of tend to be old school in that regard. You think of someone like Robert Henderson or Hal Perry in their districts up west. They spend a lot of time going out, meeting with constituents. They take a lot of phone calls from them. Um, you know, uh, there's I think there's people who if they get a flat tire – they might call their MLA or if their road didn't get plowed or if their kid's looking for a summer job or whatever, that's 
kind of seen as constituency work. And not everyone thinks that MLA should be involved in, in all that. I know when Hannah Bell announced she wasn't going to reoffer last year. She said this was one of the reasons that it was really draining the amount of things that your constituents expect you to do. So every MLA is responsible for taking care of their constituents in one way or another, but they kind of decide on their own how to do that. If you're asking how do they represent their constituents in terms of how they vote in the House and things like that or the policies they want to bring forward, well, that is, again, a thing that every MLA has to balance in terms of you know, how they represent the wishes of their constituents, how they try to represent the the will of the party and the views of the party and those positions. It's a, I think it can be a balancing act. Can you remember any time since you've been covering the PEI legislature where there was a big push in a district where constituents wanted something to go one way and the MLA went the way of their party and there being some sort of fallout from that? I wasn't even covering it back then, but the vote that took place that allowed us to have Sunday shopping in PEI. It was a private member's bill that came from Olive Crane, who was the leader of the opposition at that point. It was considered a free vote among all the parties. So everyone was able to vote their conscience or the wishes of their constituents or whatever the case may be. And we ended up with a tie vote there that had to be settled by the speaker. But uh, for sure, that was a, a situation where, as we understood that party politics were put aside, everybody vote the way you want to on this. And I mean, we, we have a government that says it doesn't whip votes right now, the PC government. Everyone, they say, oh, you can vote however you want on things. Sometimes people question, are they really that free? But anyway. Hi, I'm Lois Andrews. Why can't they bring doctors to PEI? It's It seems like there's doctors wanting to come. Can they not? make the funds available? What's going on? So back in our first episode of Good Question PEI, we did touch on on the hiring of some doctors. But Carrie, what role do our elected officials play in the hiring of doctors? Yeah, and why can't we hire doctors? That's the big question, right? And if we had the answer to that, wow, I guess we'd have the, the problem solved. There's a couple roles, I guess, here. There's, I mean, there's so many different facets to this, as, as you found out when you looked into this. So I don't think it's a money issue. Government puts forward a budget that says this is the amount of money we have for health PEI. This is the amount that will go to pay for doctors. That's the spring budget. It will come up in this sitting. MLAs will ask all kinds of questions about it and then the budget will be passed because we have a majority government. There's not much question there um, and, and that is how much money has been authorized by the House to be spent on paying for doctors, on doctor recruitment. There's other aspects to this that come through the legislature. So for example, I think it was two years ago, there was a bill that came forward to get rid of the doctor compliment. And the doctor compliment is this thing we've had for, I don't know, decades, where it stipulates that we have so many family doctors that work out of this location. We have so many specialist doctors on PEI. It's funny because actually Dr. Gardam in his big committee meeting where he got into it with the cabinet minister, Stephen Myers, suggested that health PEI had found a kind of a way to hire doctors outside the complement, but we haven't heard those details yet. But the, the restriction is, has been that health PEI says, well, we can only hire the doctors that are in the complement. If there's someone else that's available, we can't do it. So a bill was brought to the house that would have got rid of compliments and given health PEI much more freedom to be able to hire doctors. Um, that was a government bill. Then the opposition started to raise concerns about what that would mean for rural health care. Well, if health PEI doesn't 
have positions that for doctors that are specified to be in Alberton or Surrey. Maybe we won't have doctors tied to those locations anymore. Uh, government never brought the bill forward for a vote. The minister at the time was Ernie Hudson. I believe he said that it would, the bill would be brought back. We haven't seen it come back yet. So this is kind of how that whole issue can and has played out in the House. So this next question was sent in by Nate Hood. Section 79 of the FOIP Act requires a legislative committee to review the act every six years of that section coming into force. And for our listeners who aren't familiar, FOIP is the freedom of information and protection of privacy. It's one of the ways we obtain government information, like reports, records, emails, even text messages. Much of what happens in government is able to come out through that act. So, Carrie, what is happening with that review? Yeah, uh, there's been no committee that has taken this on yet. There was also a commitment in the 2021 Government Throne speech for a renewal of the Freedom of Information Protection of Privacy Act, quote, to provide greater public confidence and more accountability for government. That was a few years ago now. I don't know that anything came from that. There was also a commitment, I think it was in the 2019 election, to eliminate the $5 fee we all pay when we file a Freedom of Information Act. I don't know if that is a pressing thing that needs to happen, but it's a thing that hasn't happened. There have been multiple reviews of this act over the years, and I think sometimes Certainly for me, when I've looked at the results that came back, I've found that they've been maybe a little underwhelming, maybe didn't get at the issues that might actually exist. My favorite story about a review of the Freedom of Information Act um, – I can't believe I said I have a favorite story about a review of the FOIP Act. But it's very on brand for you actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it was Peter Bevan Baker in the House revealing that the Green Party had to file a Freedom of Information request to obtain the results of a review of the Freedom of Information Act. So if you think about that for a minute, I think that actually says a lot about some of the challenges that we face under the legislation and, and how it works. But yeah, so we had to file a FOIP request to get the results from the review of the FOIP Act to tell us what's working and what's not within the Act. So Carrie, what will you be watching for going into this spring sitting? Um, wow, it's, there's so many different top, you know, sometimes you're thinking, what are the topics they're going to bring up in the first question period? And it's, uh, well, I assume it's going to be healthcare and that situation, but there is a lot going on right now. We still haven't heard from government on the by-election laws, the Green Party defeating the PCs who had expected to win that D19 by-election. So the political landscape has shifted a bit, which is surprising because we're not even a year out from the last provincial election. But it feels like during that writ period for D19, something changed in terms of the way Islanders view health care and the way they view government's responsibility for the current situation. So the opposition parties are going to want to run with that. And honestly, the backbench PCs, um, some of them representing Summerside, you know, the Prince County Hospital, they're going to have important questions on that. And of course, the other thing we're looking for is who will be the official opposition, what if anything will change, yeah, it's going to be an interesting sitting. Well, lots to watch for, for sure. Carrie, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I loved it. Thanks for having me. Carrie Campbell is our provincial affairs reporter and covers the PEI legislature for CBC. You can catch him on Compass at 6 almost every night, breaking down the happenings of the day. 
The sitting starts next Tuesday, February 27th, and we will also be back next week to dive into another question. You can send yours to goodquestionpei at cbc.ca. And if you've been enjoying our show, I wanted to let you know about some other podcasts you will definitely enjoy. Good Question PEI is one of seven local podcasts recently launched by CBC. So check out our sister shows, Good Question Montreal and Good Question Saskatchewan. We also have another format called This Is, and you can find that in Ottawa, Calgary, Edmonton, and Vancouver Island. For Good Question PEI, I'm Nicola McLeod. Talk soon. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.